chapter 6, be reading from verse 10 to 13 and working through it this morning. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Growing up in the church, I had an idea of what the armor of God was, but I remember not ever really being super clear on what it was. I never really got it. I remember being very clear uh, that armor, I thought, was cool. I also knew that the armor of God was attached to big words that I knew were important. Things like righteousness and salvation and those kinds of things. But I never really connected all the dots. When I was a kid, I used to love drawing and painting. And I still have pictures uh, of knights that I had drawn. And like a good Christian kid, I had written the armor of God above it. But I I don't ever remember having a clear picture of, of what that meant or what that looked like. When I thought about the armor of God, I knew it had something to do with the topic of spiritual warfare, but that only led me to be more confused. Why do we need armor? What is this warfare? And so when we talk about spiritual warfare, I wonder what pops into your mind. When you think of spiritual warfare, what's your response? When you consider the supernatural and specifically how evil fits in, I imagine your mind goes a few different places. Maybe it is consumed with fascination and almost drifts too far into obsession. Maybe on the opposite side, it's aversion. Maybe it's ignorance. The culture around us paints a similar picture. Say, at least in the West, we seem to have a a bit of an ignorance, a bit of a refusal to believe in anything demonic. Yet we see an obsession in our media. We see uh, this uprising of horror movies. We see caricatures of Satan sitting on our shoulder. We celebrate and acknowledge him and his minions uh, around times like Halloween. Maybe you have a, a similar response. that You're kind of aware that it's going on, but, but you, there is a level of aversion. You think, I don't... I don't like it. I don't like talking about it. I don't like thinking about it. I just don't want it. Let's just create some space. Or maybe you say, I don't believe. And maybe your lack of belief isn't just because of aversion. Maybe it comes out of a little bit of that, that ignorance. And we can say real statements. We could say, hasn't Jesus defeated evil? I don't think this is my problem anymore. This topic has a lot of room for speculation, of course. 
And I don't want to encourage you towards the extreme, towards uh, an unhealthy fascination or an obsession. But what we do know is that the Bible is not silent on this topic. Satan has been at work since the first few pages of the Bible and the first few pages of history. In Genesis 3, he assaults Adam and Eve with lies that undermine God's authority and his word. Much of Jesus' earthly ministry, even, we see that, that the reality of spiritual warfare is real. That there is more going on than meets the eye. Now we see clearly that Jesus has authority over spirits and demons. And Paul's example here in the letter to the Ephesians is that he is not silent on the subject. He instructs them in only a few verses about the reality of spiritual warfare as well as a Christian's resource in spiritual warfare. Reality and resource. Now that resource we can spread out into multiple things. This morning we're just considering these first four verses here, chapter 6, verses 10 to 13, and then over the next number of weeks, Lord willing, we're going to just work uh, item by item through the armor of God and consider what it means for us. But this morning our big idea is this. Spiritual warfare is very real but we have a not-so-secret weapon in the fight. Spiritual warfare is very real, but we have a not-so-secret weapon in the fight. So even before we dive deeply into this conversation, I want to encourage you that not-so-secret weapon means that we do not have to be afraid. As we'll consider this morning, spiritual warfare is not something that we should ignore, but we are on the winning side. No part of this battle is meant to be fought alone. This portion of scripture should cause us to pause in sober reflection. But to pause in sober reflection and acknowledge the reality of spiritual warfare. But also acknowledge that we have so much hope. We are part of a battle that we have no chance of winning on our own. Our opponent is crafty. He's evil. He's powerful. But nowhere does the Bible say that this is a fight that we are supposed to fight solo. This section of scripture is not an instruction manual to get your act together, to put on your own armor and get out to the battlefield. We're talking about the armor of God, not the armor of you. And that's good news for us this morning. This passage does teach us about human responsibility and God's sovereignty. But spoiler alert, that secret weapon or that not-so-secret weapon that we're talking about is God himself. God who has won and wins ultimately. God who supplies your every need. God who will hold you fast. God whose armor you wear and that you are able to stand in. So let's put a pin in that. And let's jump in without missing what Paul is clear on, the reality of spiritual warfare. The reality of spiritual warfare. Read with me at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul's instruction here on the armor of God is to say put on the armor of God. And it's followed by clear insight that there is a real spiritual battle going on. The devil is scheming. 
And you can debate what your best tactic to respond to someone scheming against you would be, but I think we could agree that ignoring it is not the best option. You may be here this morning and feel like the world is against you. Many times and in many ways, the brokenness of our world is evident to you. Many times and in many ways, the brokenness of your own heart is evident to you. Because sin has entered the world, paradise has been lost. Perfect union with God has been lost. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, Satan, as the serpent in the garden, schemed against humanity. And through that, humanity fell into sin. Now when we talk about falling into sin or the fall, I think it's an appropriate term. But sometimes I think it can make sin sound a little bit light. Sounds like, oop, I fell. I, I fell into it wasn't really my fault. Now certainly we do sometimes sin by commission or omission. As in sometimes we sin by doing something. We lie, we steal, we hurt somebody for something active that we're doing. Other times we sin by omission, where we don't do something. We fail to do or we neglect to do what God expects us to do. We can see this even just a few verses earlier in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 4. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You may sin against your child by being harsh and provoking them to anger. That's something that you do. You may also sin by what you don't do. You may neglect your God-given responsibility for raising your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Sins of commission, sins of omission. Now the reason I bring this up is from the beginning, Satan is doing whatever he can to cause us to stumble in whatever way we can. Whether that be sins of commission or omission. This has been the way he works. He wants to turn our hearts away from God by whatever means necessary. You see, he twists words, he manipulates words, and he did this in the garden to lead to sins of commission and omission by Adam and Eve. When he spoke to Eve, he made her question the goodness of God. He didn't just pop into the scene and say, you should probably sin now. What did he say? He said, did God really say? He made Eve question God's character and his clear commands. She was enticed by the visual appeal of the fruit, but even more tragically... She was enticed by the desire to become wise. She thought that by eating it, she would be like God. And Adam failed too. He failed to lead his wife. I don't know what he was doing, but he shirked his responsibility to lead. Instead, he just stood by. So they both sinned by omission, and then they both took the fruit and ate. They sinned by neglecting to do what God expected of them, and they sinned by actively going against what God had made clear what God had forbidden them to do. This is the reality of the world for us. We all sin. We sin by commission and omission. We fail to keep God's law. We ignore or reject God in the world that he created. We shirk the responsibilities that he's given to us. And if we're truly honest, we actively rebel. We rebel against God. Our desire to be all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful. Our desire is to be Lord of our own life. So the Bible is clear that all have sinned 
fall short of the glory of God. We have like Adam and Eve, we, we broke peace with God. See, here's the thing. God knew that. And he is more powerful than us. That's good news for us because he defeated evil and sin. We've broken that peace that we had with God, and yet he's made a way for us to be restored. By sending his own son, Jesus Christ, into the world, he set in place this divine rescue mission for his people. That when Jesus came, he lived a perfect, sinless life. He faced temptation like all of us. He faced Satan's scheming. He faced everything that evil could possibly throw at him. And yet he did not sin. He is and was the true and better Adam. He did what Adam could never do. And even though he was sinless, he died in our place. He died in our place. He bore the weight of our sin. He rose from the dead. He triumphed over evil. That's what we just sang. You rose. The grave and death are conquered. You broke my bonds of sin and shame. Think about the gravity of those words. And the hope that we have this morning and every morning is that by turning from our sin and trusting in Christ alone for salvation, peace with God could be restored. Because of Jesus, you and I can be seen as righteous because he is righteous. And he substituted himself out in our place. Friend, if you do not know this truth, I would love to share more with you about this hope. This is all of our greatest need. We are sinners in need of a Savior, and God has given us that Savior in Jesus Christ. would love to talk to you more about that after the service, if, if you would be willing. And brothers and sisters, we do not graduate from this truth. This is the good news for us today. This is his mercy that's new for us every morning. And yet Satan's chief aim is to have us forget this profound truth. He wants nothing more than for us to forget or ignore or reject God, to forget our hope, to forget the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. Now even though there's no question of who is winning and who will win ultimately, it doesn't stop Satan and his devices. His mission is to pull you down with him into separation with God. Now again, we don't know all there is to know about Satan and evil, but we do know that spiritual warfare is real. We know that Satan is crafty. His scheming, his cunning, it's shrewd. He is a liar, the father of lies, yet he disguises himself as an angel of light. Because the closer his lies can sound to the truth, the more easily we may fall for them. He doesn't say outright, reject your creator who loves you and cares for you dearly. He gets as close to the truth as possible in order to devour his prey. We fall victim to this when we sin. Jared C. Wilson wrote a book called The Gospel According to Satan. I've given out at least one, maybe two copies here. It's a provocative book title. Uh, I've told this story too. I think it's just hilarious that Amazon accidentally categorized it as uh, 
a book on Satanism and uh, demonology. And so he was the number one bookseller in Satanism and demonology and got a bunch of really bad reviews from a bunch of Satanists who accidentally bought his book and read about the gospel. But it's a great book that's devoted completely to this topic about Satan's lies that he tells us that sound a lot like the truth. Even when you read the, uh, the table of contents, you might be like, oh, that, these sound like good things. But you see how Satan manipulates and twists. Wilson writes this, We play garden every day. We drink the mirage's sand and call it living water. We indulge our flesh and call it glory. We worship ourselves and call it living on the next level. Our hope is as it has always been, knowing God and living in communion with him. But we pretend that the divorce isn't real, that the disconnect is negligible, or worse, we call the devil's lies the God's honest truth. This is the reality of spiritual warfare. We have an enemy. And I know that sounds weird. It feels weird to say. But we have an enemy. It's true. And it starts to put the pieces together for us about how we continually keep stumbling and falling into this sin how do we keep falling into that same sin why do we treasure money or possessions why do we desire power or control why do we assume that that thing or that relationship that we're pursuing will give us ultimate satisfaction we are reaching up and we're grabbing the fruit that satan entices with us entices us with and before your teeth even break the skin of that fruit, you know it's wrong. But this is the way he works. He wants you away from your creator. Now, his goal is to tempt, to attack, to seek, to kill, and to destroy. And his craftiness makes him attack different people in different ways. Maybe it's this kind of subtle scheming, this water torture type slow drip that causes you to drift off the path. If you've read the book, The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, uh, I recommend you read it if you haven't. It's the, I think the stat is still true. It's the most uh, best-selling book apart from the Bible of all time. But it's a book about the Christian walk, about the pilgrimage. And we see the main character, Christian, appropriately named, is tried to be pulled off the path in every possible different way. We see shame, discouragement, despondency. Different times and in different ways he's attacked. And we see different pilgrims along the same journey that are pulled away in different ways and by different things. Again, if you haven't read the book, it's great. There's some great kids' versions of the book, too, uh, that you can work through as a family. But we see that that's the way Satan works. He wants to pull pilgrims off the narrow path. Maybe, too, though, it is an all-out assault that Satan attacks you with. Maybe he takes all that you love and have and, and spiritual warfare to you looks more like Job. Or maybe it's even using our own sinful hearts against us. We see in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, Paul writes, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You better believe he's going to take advantage of our own sinful hearts to twist and spiral and send us down a road that we should not be going down. We need to be on guard for this type of deception. Author C.S. Lewis does a masterful job 
at writing about some of these ideas in his book, The Screwtape Letters. In this book, he writes, it's a really unique book in that he writes from the perspective of a senior demon named Screwtape who writes to his nephew, Wormwood, a junior tempter. And the whole book is this series of letters where Screwtape writes to Wormwood and he, he tries to coach him on how best to derail this patient of theirs, the, this new Christian. Of course, this is a book that is a work of fiction, but I think it well demonstrates the subtle and twisting way that Satan works. Uh, keep in mind, as I read a few quotes from this book, from the book's perspective, God is the enemy. So when you read enemy, he's talking about God because it's from the demon's perspective. Lewis writes things like this from Screwtape. All extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy, are to be encouraged. Satan's goal is to have us worship anything but God. Or how about this one? Never forget that we, when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are in a sense on the enemy, or God, we are on, in a sense on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. This is the way he works. Lewis writes again from Screwtape to Wormwood and he talks about the, the ways that they can subtly distract the patient to keep him from keeping his eyes focused on God. He talks about distracting him through advertisements in yesterday's paper to sit and do nothing for long periods of time, to stay up too late. Not roistering, but doing nothing. Now, of course, we could apply this today. I don't imagine many of you are being distracted by the ads in yesterday's paper. But we can think of this for us. Where do we waste time? Those apps on our phones. Laziness. Social media. You may think, this is minor, Aaron. This is minor. It's not a big thing. Why would this be so destructive? Again, the quote from Screwtape Letters says, You will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report a spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And that's terrifying to me. When I know my own heart, that gradual, safe road is not a road we want to be on. This is the kind of subtle lying and truth-twisting that we need to be wary of 
This is why it matters as Christians that we have a community around us. We need friends to have our backs. This is why we need to be a part of a healthy church. We need brothers and sisters who are willing to watch out for us. And we need to listen to each other when they do. When we are blinded by the glisten of the fruit, we need to listen when they say, stop. When we're reaching for it and we take it, we need a friend to slap it out of our hands. And if necessary, we need brothers and sisters to tackle us if necessary. Because we are prone to wander. We need each other enough to help one another to follow Christ. Satan knows this, and so he'll do what he can to separate us from fellowship with one another. He loves to pick off wandering sheep. Lewis writes for Screwtape of how dangerous the church can be to their sinister plans, how dangerous it is for someone to belong in fellowship. Screwtape's perspective again, he says, Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy wants him to be a pupil. Friends, all this to say that Satan is crafty. He is evil and he is powerful. Paul writes in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This fight is beyond us. Paul writes of these different names and descriptions. He writes of the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil. And some have speculated over the years whether these different titles are uh, kind of a hierarchy of demons. And we could speculate all we want. I, I don't think there's strong evidence to say that that's exactly what Paul's doing here. I think what Paul is doing is giving us a picture of the vastness of Satan's evil. shows us his cunning and his might. John Stott writes of Paul's descriptions here. He says, He supplies us with no biography of the devil and no account of the origin of the forces of darkness. He assumes their existence as common ground between himself and his readers. In any case, his purpose is not to satisfy our curiosity, but to warn us of their hostility and teach us how to overcome them. Is God's plan to create create a new society in the church, then they will do their utmost to destroy it. Has God, through Jesus Christ, broken down the walls, dividing human beings of different races and cultures from each other? Then the devil, through his emissaries, will strive to rebuild them. Does God intend his reconciled and redeemed people to live together in harmony and purity? Then the powers of hell will scatter them, the seeds of discord and sin. So through these verses, we see that our fight is not merely against flesh and blood. But just because these rulers and authorities have some power does not leave us without hope. Pick your favorite sport and imagine you had to play that game. I'm going to pick football. It's not my favorite sport, but I'm going to pick football. Imagine you had to play a football game against a very competent high school team probably American, right? Those guys are big. 
and you're playing football against them, but it's just you, one versus 11. I don't care who you are. You don't stand a chance. Now, for the few guys that are in here thinking, I think I'd, I'd score a couple. I'd get a couple. T-. No, give your head a shake. One versus 11. You don't stand a chance. On your own, you face a formidable opponent. But the thing is, that's not the scenario that we get when we think about this. God tells us that we will be able to stand. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 to 13, we see the reality of spiritual warfare. But even more, we see our resource for spiritual warfare. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. In our little metaphorical football game, it's not you against an unbeatable opponent. It's you and the entire NFL against this one high school football team. There's no contest. The battle is won. When God says that you can be strong, he says be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Put on his armor, not your flimsy tinfoil armor best efforts. God equips you to stand against the schemes of the devil. I love this so much. This is the position that we find ourselves in. God, I don't know what to do. God says, don't worry. Be strong in my strength. But God, the devil himself is scheming against me. Him? I've already crushed him. Here, take my armor. But I put it on. All of it. Take it up. The whole thing. You will be able to stand with my help. This fight that is beyond flesh and blood is very real. But the resource that we have in God is beyond what we could ever imagine. The God who created and sustains the universe says to take up his armor. The God who raises the dead says to take up his armor. Of course, we are not talking about a flesh and blood fight. We are not talking about literal armor. We're going to spend the next number of weeks working through this armor. But what are we talking about here? Verse 14 says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Friends, that's the armor that God provides. And as we're going to see each week, it's not our armor, it's God's armor. We are not passive in this. We have a role to play. We are to be strong. We are to stand, but it's only with God's help. The armor that we wear is found 
only in the strength that God provides for us because of the finished work of Christ. Each element of armor points us to Jesus. Jesus, who we recently remembered at Christmas, didn't keep his distance. He came and experienced life as a man. He faced temptation like you and me, but he fought the battle for us. And so as strange as it might feel to consider spiritual warfare, it is real. Ian Duguid writes this, The choice is not whether you will be a Christian soldier or a Christian civilian, but whether you will be a prepared Christian soldier or an unprepared one. Let's not turn our eyes from the reality that there is a battle going on, but let's not forget which side of the battle we're on. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, right on, Aaron, I feel weak. I feel weary. Friend, trust in Christ. Trust in him and his power over death. God's word says be strong in the Lord, not be strong in yourself. God's power is made perfect in your weakness. Not you'll be made great because of your weakness. God's power is made perfect in your weakness. It's not our job to secure the victory. It's to lash ourselves to Christ. And this being strong is, is more than a quick fix. It's a lifetime drawing strength from Christ. And so brothers and sisters, let's stand shield to shield. Not to throw grammar at you or anything at the very end of the sermon. But what we miss in the English here is that these imperatives are plural. Ephesians is a letter to the church, about the church. And so it's fitting that these confidence-inspiring charges to be strong in the Lord and to put on the whole armor of God are corporate. New Testament scholar Klein Snodgrass comments on these verses. He says, We usually interpret them as if they were addressed to individuals. But without denying their relevance for individuals, we should understand them as Paul's instructions for the church collectively to put on God's armor and to stand as one person. The Apostle Paul exhorts uh, the church in Philippi with this corporate standing language in a similar way. Philippians 1, 27 through 28. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that is from God. Brothers and sisters, be strong, stand together, and stay lashed to Christ. He doesn't keep his distance. He has been in the trenches. And his promise that we often forget at the end of the Great Commission is that he will be with us always to the end of the age. And so to close, let's hear these comforting and confidence-inspiring words again from Ian Duguid. Unlike armchair generals who watch the fighting from a safe distance, Jesus has himself worn the armor and won the victory. You are called to wear the armor of God, not because that's what Jesus would do if he found himself in a similar situation. You are called to wear God's armor because that is what Jesus has already 
done. Wearing God's armor all the way to the cross. Let's pray. God, we come to you humbled, acknowledging that there is a battle going on. But, oh Lord, help us remember that the battle belongs to you. That you don't call us to be strong in our own strength, but in the strength of your might. That you tell us to put on your armor so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. God, help us to take up the whole armor of God. Help us to withstand. Help us collectively to stand firm. Help us to behold Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. When we share in the